Well, good morning, everybody. Good morning, good morning, good morning. So last week, uh, as you know, last week we began our series in Advent, and one of the main, uh, the main desires of this series in Advent was to really um, recapture that which is sacred, that which is uh, beautiful. Because I think what happens is we, we get used to our routines, we get used to our rituals, and then we lose sight of the why, we lose sight of the beauty of these things. And so we're, uh, we're journeying through this, this Advent uh, to look at what it means to really celebrate what has been given to us, which is King Jesus uh, it was uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer said that there was a time when this season brought a sense of sacredness and holiness, but the money changers continue to rob God of his glory. I just thought that was a fascinating uh, take on what happens inside of this Christmas season, a time in which uh, this, this season was beautiful, this season was, was sacred, this season was truly what it originally was supposed to, uh, to be. And yet we've, we've co-opted it, we've missed it, we've lost sight of what that is. And so that is the objective through this series, is to draw ourselves back to this. And so we talked uh, last week about hope, and I just want to kind of share with you what we went over as a brief recap, and then we'll delve into this week, which we're going to talk about peace. Uh, at, the end of this, at the end of the service, I asked you all to write, or at the beginning of the service, I asked you all to write down on a piece of paper something that you are hopeful for, something that you have hope in. And at the end of the celebration, we put these on the cross in, in order to, um, to, to do one of two things. If it is a hope that God has promised, we leave it right there for Jesus because we know that he has it. But if it is a hope that God has not promised, it is actually not a hope that we should have, and we should nail that to the cross. We should surrender that peace to Jesus. And here is why. Because hope is based in truth, otherwise it is not hope. You need to understand this. Hope is based in truth, otherwise it is not hope. If it is not based in truth, truth what do you have? Wishful thinking. You do not hope in hope. You do not put your faith in faith, you put your hope in a truth, and you trust that that truth will come about. This is what hope truly is. And so we need to really get ourselves wrapped into the idea that hope is rooted in truth, or it is not hope. And then where our faith comes in is the, the substance and evidence, the actions that our lives take that prove we truly are believing what God has promised. And so there were many things that were written, and, and they were all really good, many of which, uh, one of the, the key themes in this was actually repeated several times was peace. And so we get to talk about that today because that is a promise that God has actually made. In other words, that's a hope that's rooted in truth, and that's a hope you can have, right? And since that's a hope that you can have, you can have faith. You can trust that that peace will come. But we do need to dig deep and find out what it is that this peace truly is about. So as we delve into this theme of peace uh, during the second week here of this exploration, I want to turn our attention to the profound significance that faith has in attaining true peace. It sounds like faith is, is going to gain us something. That is true, actually. The, the act of faith, the, the life lived by faith, the, the idea of a belief with feet, you know, faith with feet, is truly going to attain this peace. And so we need to understand the connection particularly within the context of Christmas, because this is what's going to make us really rejoice in this season. 
The angel's proclamation in Luke chapter 2 verse 14 resounds with this, with this promise of peace on earth. But it comes with several questions once you read that. Right? And it depends on the translation you actually use. Uh, we have reduced Luke chapter 2, verse 14, down to this weird phrase that says, Peace on earth, goodwill towards men. Peace on earth, goodwill towards men. Do you know that that statement is missing the most significant concept of what is communicated inside of Luke 2.14? It's missing who the peace is for. To whom this peace is offered, and we need to ask that question. And then once we do find out who that peace is offered to, we have to ask, are we those people? And if not, how do we get to be those people? And what you're going to find is that the the connection is profoundly linked to faith. So, uh, to whom is this offer extended? According to the scriptures, it is given to those on whom God's favor rests. There's Luke 2.14 in its fullness, right? Luke 2.14 says, glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth, peace to those on whom his favor rests. Very quick, simple question. Does God's favor, God's peace rest on all mankind? No, it does not. And this is a hard thing because when we make Christmas about peace that is given to all, what we're reduced to is some sort of 1960s, 1970s hippie peace, which is not even peace at all, right? I mean, a lot of you here, I'm looking at you, you lived through that. It wasn't terribly peaceful, was it, right? So you lived through it, you didn't find any peace in it, and yet we have a gospel that offers peace, but we failed to read the full text, To those with whom God is pleased. This is a significant concept. And so according to the scriptures, that favor rests on people that God is pleased with. So how do we find favor with God? The answer to this question is simple, and it's found in Hebrews 11.6, which we'll explore more in just a second. Without faith, the scripture says, it is impossible to please God. So God's favor rests on on those he is pleased with, and there is one way to please God, that is to trust him. As we unravel the layers of this connection, what I think uh, we'll see is a journey through a Christmas narrative that actually changes us for the better, and it actually promotes, or it, it demands that we promote Christmas a certain way. Not a way where we just get together and love each other and drink a lot of eggnog and open presents although those fit very well in this season, right? But we're going to see it bigger. So let's examine this theme of peace within, again, the context of the story. So Luke 2, 14, one more time, says, Glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth, peace to those on whom his favor rests. Again, who is that peace given to? From that, who is it? The ones he favors, those with whom he is pleased. Now, how do we please him? Uh, Turn with me, if you have your Bibles, to Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6. And it's on the screen for those of you who don't have it. But I want you to highlight this passage in your Bible. I want you to underline it. I want you to put a star beside it. Because in, in everything that you do in your life, I want you to always draw back to this beautiful statement 
in this beautiful chapter of the Bible, Hebrews 11, which talks about faith and talks about how important this idea is. But verse 6 in particular says, and without faith, it is impossible to please God. And then it goes on, because anyone who comes to him must what? Believe. Believe that he exists and that he is a rewarder of those who earnestly seek him. Last week we talked about hope. Hope is based in truth, otherwise it's not hope. Now what did it just say here? It says that we must believe that he exists. How do we know that God exists? Do what? He told us. He told us. That's one way we know God exists. We believe. Why do we believe? What has shown us that he exists? Say again? His touch. He's, he's active in our lives. What else? Tina, you just said something. Creation. So the Bible says that the heavens declare the glory of God. Did you know that according to scholars, according to theologians everywhere, there are two books of Revelation, not just one known as the Bible. The two books of Revelation are the book called the Bible and the book the Bible references, which is the book of nature. The heavens declare the glory of God. And the Bible simply recorded that that was already speaking. Right? The stars said, somebody made me. The sun and the moon said, somebody made me. Right? The earth that we reside on, somebody made me. And so these two books of Revelation are declaring this. How do we know that God exists? Well, we've heard the story. And it's beyond just that God said it. There's an eyewitness testimony nature, right? It knows who it was uh, formed by, okay? And so how do we have hope? Faith, it, it, without faith, it's impossible to please God because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists. We have a hope that is based in truth, don't we? We have a hope that's based in truth because we have evidence for it. We've looked, we've seen, Everyone is understanding this, guys. Even the, the staunch atheist that wants to push back against everything. Uh, there was a comedian, and I can't remember his name off the top of my head right now, but it was, a, it was an amazing uh, little bit that he did. He said that, that uh, the, the harder thing to believe in was actually that everything came from nothing. That everything came from nothing. He said, because if in fact everything does come from nothing, that's a pretty magical nothing. Right? That can create everything, right? And so, and, and on top of that, nothing is something that you can't prove. Nothing is something that you can't uh, see. That's nothing. It's kind of a defining characteristic of nothing, right? Right? And so nothing, this magical nothing, puts everything into existence. And so this guy pushes back against these atheists. This comedian pushes back and he says, he says so what happens to you when you die? And they're like, nothing. And he goes, what do you mean, Nothing. You merge with nothing. That's what happens to us when we, when we die. And he goes, so hold on a second. Nothing created everything. And when you die, you merge back into nothing. So what you're saying is when you die, you merge back with your creator? This isn't that fascinating. You sound just like a person of faith. Because you are a person of faith. Everybody in the world has to trust something. Okay? And the question is, do you trust the something that comes from nothing? Or do you trust that something came from something, someone in this case, and that the heavens declare who he is. Without faith, it's impossible to please God because anyone who comes to him must first believe that he exists. And then two, that he's a rewarder of those who earnestly seek him. Here is a hope that is based in truth that you need to have faith in. God rewards those who seek him. That's amazing, right? 
Now, what does that mean? That's where, that's where theology gets real crazy, and that's where people argue and fight and, and start to attack each other. Let's leave that on the shelf for a little bit with that stupid elf for Christmas, right? What we're really looking at is the idea that those who seek God, God says he will reward them. This is actually the root of faith that is based in a hope that is based in truth, and without that faith, it's impossible to please God. Why is it impossible to please God without faith? Why would it be impossible to please him? What are you saying if you doubt everything that he has made and said? You're saying, I don't believe. You're saying, I don't trust you. You can be saying, you're a liar. You can say a lot of things. How many of you would like that if your kids came to you and you're like, Mom, Dad, I love you. You do a lot of things for me, but I can't trust you. That would hurt, wouldn't it? I mean, just like a gut punch right there. But God is not like a human. There are times when you can't trust your parents. They're people, right? I mean, my mom's protesting this right now, but it's okay, right? But what, what I am getting at is that there are times when you can't trust a person, but there is not a time when you cannot trust God, okay? So without faith, it's impossible to please God. Now, where are we going to find this peace that we're talking about? We're going to find that peace from God. God is the, uh, the giver of peace, but he's going to give it to a certain group of people, those with whom his favor, those on whom his favor rests. How do we gain the favor of God? Faith. We trust him. Without faith, it's impossible to please him. So what type of peace, now that we've kind of solved this weird little puzzle, what kind of peace are we actually talking about? Is this an inner peace that we're referring to? Is it a political peace? Is it a worldly peace? Is it a peace that we can fully understand, or is it always a mystery, or is it sometimes a mystery? You want to know what the answer is? Yes. The answer is yes to those questions. Is it a political peace? Yes. Is it an inner peace? Yes. Is it a peace we can understand? Yes, sometimes. Is it a peace that still has mystery? Yes peace that definitely passes or surpasses understanding at times. The theme of peace isn't limited to external circumstances, but it extends to inner tranquility, right? This, especially during uh, a holiday season that everybody says is chaotic. And it can be chaotic without dysfunctional family members, right? It can be chaotic because there's a lot to do, a lot of boxes to check, right? So as we encourage uh, each other to seek this kind of peace, what we have to do is we have to emphasize that all of it, again, comes by faith, and without faith, we will never arrive at it. We're people standing on the street corner, proverbially, of life, declaring that we know the reason for the season, and when we tell them that, all we say is that they should accept, most of the time, mentally accept the idea of a God, and that that God has a name, and it's Jesus. That's kind of the limit of what we do. But the real peace that is found within this season is for a people to go and declare that God is a trustworthy God and that if you trust him, no matter what the circumstances around you, you will not be shaken. You will not fear. You will not be uh, left with sleepless nights, not at least all the time. Right? There are times for stress inside of the Christian life. Don't miss this. But Hebrews 11.1 1 defines faith as a confidence in what we hope for. What is hope again? Something based on 
truth, right? And it's an assurance about what we don't see because we don't see the final product yet. There's so much left for us. There's so much that we're all awaiting, but that is all true, and we trust God in the meantime. And as we do that, what happens is no matter how many lies get told to us, no matter how much chaos happens in the world, no matter how many nations go to war against each other, we still know where we reside, at peace in the creator God. This assurance becomes, as I mentioned last week, an anchor that steadies our hearts, inside of life's uncertainties. I quoted Bonhoeffer at the beginning and said that there was a time in which this season brought a sense of sacredness and holiness, but the the money changers continued to rob God of his glory. This came from a a sermon or a message that Bonhoeffer gave on December 2nd of 1928. And I want to read just a couple of paragraphs to you of this. He starts with Revelation chapter 3, verse 20. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. When the old Christianity spoke of the return of the Lord Jesus, they thought of a great day of judgment. Even though this thought may appear to be so unlike Christmas, it is original Christianity and to be taken extremely seriously. When we hear Jesus knocking, our conscience is first of all pricked. Uh, Are we prepared? Advent becomes a time of deep soul searching, of self-examination. Based on what we just talked about, what are you examining? Not whether or not you're the perfect human, that you do everything right. That's not with whom God's favor rests. It is those who have faith. So you're searching yourself to find out, do you trust King Jesus? Bonhoeffer goes on and says, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there is anything grievous uh, in me and lead me in the way everlasting, Psalm 139, 23 and 24. There was a time, he says, when this season brought a sense of sacredness and holiness, but the money changers continued to rob God of his glory. He's not talking about consumerism. We have become so accustomed to the idea of divine love and the birth of a child in a manger that we no longer feel the longing for some and the fear for others of what will come. What Christians are coming, what Christ's coming will actually mean. For some, there is a sense of great urgency and expectation. While the world appears cold and indifferent to the message of the gospel, taking only the pleasant and agreeable parts and forgetting or avoiding the serious aspect. Does this sound like a modern sermon? It does, and it was written in 1929. This should serve also as a really important lesson for some of you who think there was a golden age. You are wrong. (laughs) There has never been a time when everything was awesome. We have always been sinful. We have always been broken. We have always missed the point of the story. I don't know why. I guess we're just dumb, right? But that is true, right? And so they forget or avoid the serious aspects that God draws near to the people of this planet and lays claim to us if what happens, church? If we walk by faith. The coming of Christ, the Messiah, is not only good tidings, but first of all, it is frightening news for those who do not trust him. 
Bonhoeffer goes on, and it's an amazing write-up of what he shares. But I want you to see that we are supposed to be a people searching for peace, or we are, actually, if I asked for a show of hands. Everybody wants peace. But we go about it so many different ways, and the only way to actually get it is to get back in touch with the beauty, the romance of the story, which is God calling his creation to walk by faith. That's it. That's it. Trust him every day with everything you have. Jesus is often referred to by a really powerful name uh, in, in the scripture. He's referred to as the Prince of Peace from Isaiah 9. And I want you to go with me to Isaiah 9. If you have a Bible here or a digital access to a Bible, get in there with me even though it'll be on the screen. I want you to follow through with something powerful. Because there will be a point when I don't put it on the screen and I want you to hear what is said. Isaiah chapter 9 paints a vivid picture of a nation in distress, a people that were walking in darkness, according to the text. Yet amid this kind of gloom and this promise of, uh, this, this gloom and this uh, promise of judgment, a promise of transformation also emerges. The prophecy declares the advent of a child, the coming of a child, a son given to the world who is going to bear the title Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. It's the Prince of Peace that is not merely a symbol of of tranquility, right? He's, He's a harbinger of justice and righteousness. What did we talk about last week with regard to hope? We learned that the hope that is based in truth for the people, Anna and Simeon and others waiting for the consolation of Israel, was that justice was coming. As they prepared for this time, they were waiting for a judge. They were waiting for a warrior. They were waiting for a king. We come to Christmas and we await the latest iPhone. We're missing something. We're missing something. And so, this Prince of Peace is a harbinger of justice and righteousness, bringing an end to oppression and then establishing a kingdom that cannot ever be shaken. And then the Bible tells us this really odd theological reality of something that we often refer to as the there, the now, and the not yet. And that is that King Jesus comes and he inaugurates and establishes kingdom, his kingdom. Meanwhile, other kingdoms are still ruling and reigning and we're actually subject to them. And it's confusing for us because we go, who do we obey? Who do we follow? And the answer will always be we follow God. But... We're still in this in-between, this tied-up place. It's crucial, though, to address the entirety of Isaiah 9, including verses 8 through 21, if you're going to fully grasp the context and implications of peace. How many of you love the idea that the Prince of Peace came to bring peace? You love it. How many of you know that while he did it, he didn't come to just bring peace? But he also threatens a sword for those who do not trust him as he has called them to. Watch this. This is fascinating. Nevertheless, verse 1, there will be no more gloom for those who were in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the future, he will honor Galilee of the nations by way of the sea beyond the Jordan. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. I love this beautiful picture. You have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. 
They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest, as warriors rejoice when dividing the plunder. Do you see the pictures? You're, you're out for harvest and you see all the bounty and the plentifulness of what has been produced for you. That is a beautiful joy. But it's also the joy that a warrior comes when justice is served, defeat is clear, and you are the winner and the spoils are yours. For as in the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them. This is God shattering the yoke. The bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressors. Every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning and will be fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father. Say it with me, church. Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. So, peace to the world, at least to those on whom his favor rests. How do we know we're favored by God? We walk by faith. Guess the extent of that peace. Forever, it knows no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. And look at the why of your hope here. This is beautiful. The why of your hope, the reason why you can trust that this is going to happen, the zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. It is stated as a promise and a fact. It is going to be accomplished. But look at verse 8. This is where, ladies and gentlemen, we hit something that we go, oh, this is awful, right? This is where everybody's throat gets stuck. Starting at verse 8. The Lord has sent a message against Jacob. Whoa, 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 whoa. I thought you said peace. (laughs) Maybe, right? The Lord has sent a message against Jacob. It will fall on Israel. All the people will know it. Ephraim and the inhabitants of Samaria who say with pride and arrogance of heart, The bricks have fallen down, but we will rebuild with dressed stone. The fig trees have been felled, but we will replace them with cedars. This is mockery, by the way. It doesn't matter what God has taken because of punishment and judgment. We'll rebuild. Nothing is hurting us. But the Lord has strengthened Rezin's foes against them and has spurred their enemies on. Arameans from the east and the Philistines from the west have devoured Israel with open mouth. Yet, for all this, his anger is not turned away. His hand is still upraised. Do you know what that means? It means he's still holding his hand like this. He will still smack you right across your face. (laughs) I absolutely love the picture of my God. Probably too much on the justice side. That just happens to be me, but it is who he is, right? His hand is still upraised, but the people have not returned to him who struck them, nor have they sought the Lord Almighty. Do you see what the problem is? They have no faith. They do not seek him in repentance or for trust or to look for him. So the Lord will cut off from Israel both head and tail, both palm branch and reed in a single 
day. And in case you're wondering who the head and the tail are, here's where we swallow hard. The elders and dignitaries are the head. The prophet who teach lies are the tail. Because what's happening in Israel in this day and in many other days was that the tail was wagging the dog and the dog wasn't willing to stop it. We love to do a lot of things and leave all kinds of things go unchecked. But there is a responsibility for leaders to stop things. And that is to call people to a greater faith. There's a responsibility for an elder in a church to do something more. To actually sit over and govern all things, yes, even prophecy. But they weren't. And so the tail is wagging the dog and chaos is ensuing. Those who guide this people mislead them. And those who are guided are led astray. Therefore, the Lord will take no pleasure in the young men. Look at how fierce his anger is. The Lord will take no pleasure in the young men, nor will he pity the fatherless and widows. For everyone is ungodly and wicked. Every mouth speaks folly. Yet for all this, his anger is not turned away. His hand is still upraised. Surely wickedness burns like a fire. It consumes briars and thorns. It sets the forest thicket ablaze so that it rolls upward in a column of smoke. By the wrath of the Lord Almighty, the land will be scorched and the people will be fueled. Uh, People will be fuel for the fire. They will not spare one another. One, uh, on the right hand, they will devour but still be hungry. On the left, they will eat but not be satisfied. Each will feed on the flesh of their own offspring. There's a fascinating reality to this because this moment takes place earlier than another moment in Israel's history in which the Bible records them reverting to cannibalism and killing their own because they had become that depraved. Manasseh will feed on Ephraim and Ephraim on Manasseh. Together they will turn against Judah. So you have this infighting and this division and chaos. Yet for all this, his anger is not turned away. His hand is still upraised. Is that not staggering to you? Because it's not just that peace is offered to those with whom God has favor. And that favor comes by trusting him and having faith. But it is also true that the opposite, the lack of God's favor, awaits those who do not trust him. And that is a hard pill to swallow. Ladies and gentlemen, when we talk about a message that offers peace to the world, at least those who please him, We should enter Christmas with a message that says, please have faith and trust in God. Because the alternative is not good. It's not just accept the premise that God exists and that that God's name is Jesus. And every year you get to celebrate Christmas by opening presents to each other and forgetting wholly about him. It is that in everything you do, you have trust. And as a consequence of that trust, you have the peace you're looking for. But Christian after Christian after Christian enters this season repeatedly and says, I have no peace. What it is, is you have no faith. 
And I don't mean your meter's too low and God hates you. I'm simply saying you're not putting him in the seat he belongs in as king. And you're not trusting him for the outcome of the events of your life. And you're not trusting him for the way things turn out or the way things are going or what you should say or do or be or whatever. You're not trusting him. You're just looking at the world and saying, I want the peace he talks about. And then he tells you how, and you're like, no, I'm not going to do that. But he's called you to walk by faith. So what is faith again? Hebrews 11.1. Faith is confidence in what we hope for. Why? Because hope is based in truth. And assurance about what we do not see. Because the story's not over. But God has proven himself faithful all the way to this point. He will not fail in the end. So this peace that we're talking about, we ask the question, is it worldly peace? Is it, is it political peace? Is it inner peace? What is it? The answer is yes. And we need to explore that. In John chapter 14, verse 27, it says, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. How many of you would love to live your life without fear? Well, good. Here's your answer. The peace that God gives to you will allow you, or at least calls you, to not walk in fear. What is that peace? Faith in him. Because he is bigger than all your circumstances. So, we have to find peace in our political situation. The world's going to hell in a handbasket. What do I do? Trust Jesus. Nathan, that is way too simple. I don't mean just trust in Jesus and don't do anything. I mean trust in Jesus and do what he says. And in the world we live in, or at least the America we live in for now, you and I have an opportunity to do things, don't we? If, in fact, we want to see change in the world, what can we do? One thing we think we can do, at least, is we can vote. I'm not sure the efficacy of those votes, but nonetheless, we can do that. We can protest, we can call for things, we can say things, we can have a dialogue in the public square about things. I'm not saying that your faith in Jesus for governmental issues or, or for the world around you is just to sit there and say, it's all going to crap, but God's got it, I'm just going to keep saying that to myself and it'll be okay. No, I mean trust him, and I mean do what he says. If he has called you to take, a, take action or take a step or make a statement, do so. That's what we're supposed to do. So we need to look at practical ways to cultivate this inner peace or this grand peace amidst a busy holiday season. The Bible often connects peace and faith by emphasizing the idea that true peace comes through trusting in Jesus, not just in your mind. It means trusting in Jesus and having steadfast faith, having, uh, having hope in times of trouble. The concept is rooted in belief that trusting God's sovereignty, trusting God's kingship, living according to his principles will bring the peace that you desperately want. But you will never arrive at that peace if you do not do it this way, I assure you. And you will find other, reason, or other ways to try to attempt it. You'll drink yourself into peace. You'll take drugs and get yourself into peace. You'll have sex to try to find peace. All of those things will fall short, I promise you. Are those things built and, and made, some of which are made for uh, the, the pleasure of men? Yes, that's awesome. 
but they will not answer the deep question of peace. They will not answer that in the end. Philippians chapter 4, 6 through 7 gives us a, a really good example. Do not be anxious about anything. How many of you have got that checked off? Yeah. <laughs> this is God literally saying through the apostle Paul to his wife, calm down. Right? I just don't get it. It doesn't work, right? Calm down, Nathan. Yeah, thanks. That helped, right? Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, here's your practical step. By prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. How many of you feel that you should pray more? Awesome. How many of you also want peace? Awesome. You know how to get there, right? Stop making excuses for, for not praying. Well, God knows my heart. He does, stupid. He also wants to know your voice. Just saying. <laughs> Present your request to God. And the peace of God, which tr transcends all understanding. You remember that peace that's also a mystery at times? Or can be? Transcending understanding. The peace of God, which transcends understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. You know why you need your heart guarded and your mind guarded for that matter? Because as you trust God, the world is going to tell you that's not a good plan. How many of you have lived that? Yeah, every one of us, right? You're going to say, okay, God, I'm putting all this in, in your hands. I'm, I'm going to lay it down at your feet. I'm going to nail it to the cross. I'm going to pray about it every day. I'm going to trust you that you are going to give me everything. And while I'm doing that, I'm going to thank you. And I'm going to say, Lord, I know that you've come through so many times in the past. I have no reason to doubt you now. And the world's going to say, that dude's a liar. That dude doesn't know what he's talking about. Why do you trust God? Why don't you do it yourself? It's not the answer. It's not the answer. Prayer and petition with thanksgiving, don't forget it, church. With thanksgiving, present your requests to God. Step two, Isaiah 26, verse three. You will keep in perfect peace, God will keep in perfect peace all who trust in you. What is, how does peace arrive? Faith. What is faith? Trust, right? All whose thoughts are fixed on you. You want to know how to trust God? Fix every thought you have on him. Fix every thought you have on him. You're going into work today. It's feeling like it's going to go south. Give your thoughts to him. Trust him. Lord, I am negative right now. I am frustrated right now. If I keep going this way, I might make everything worse. I'm putting it on you. That's your step. Prayer and petition with thanksgiving. Putting all your thoughts fixed on him. Give it to him. Think on the things that are good and pure and holy and right. That's what you do. John chapter 14, 27, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world uh, do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. When your heart becomes troubled, when your heart uh, begins to show fear, what should you do again? Back to Isaiah, fix your thoughts on him. Back to prayer and, and petition with thanksgiving. Why? Because it actually will stop that fear. It will stop that fear. I am a living testimony that that fear goes away. Romans chapter 5 verse 1, therefore since we have been justified through faith, how are we justified? By trusting God. Because he's the justifier. He's the only one who can. 
We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So what is our active step again? Faith. Trust him. Trust him in everything. And then the passage that's not on the screen, but all of you know it, and it'll serve as our action step today. Cast all your anxiety on him. But here's why. A hope that is based in truth. He cares for you. Why can you throw your anxiety on King Jesus? Why can you expect that he will uh, give you peace even if the circumstances don't change? Because he cares for you. Because he knows what your heart needs. He knows what you need even more than you know what you need. All of these verses convey the idea that turning to God in faith leads to this profound sense of peace and it transcends all worldly circumstances or worldly concerns. So I want us to be thinking about this as we prepare for this activity and prepare for our time of communion. Before the communion teams come up, I want to set the stage for what we're going to do and then I'll make it clear when it's time to start. I want to... I want you to take out a piece of paper in the seat back pocket in front of you or behind you if you're on the front row. I want you to grab a pen and I am asking you to write something down. I want you to write down a situation or situations causing you stress and after taking communion, what I want you to do is I want you to come up and I want you to surrender. That's what I'm really wanting you to do. And listen, no names on these things. I'm not going to study it. I'm not going to send you an email like, wow, what's the problem with you? Not going to happen, right? I want you to write what you're stressed about, what you're concerned about. Don't show it to anybody, not your wife, not your husband, not your kids. I want you to put it on that piece of paper. And when we take communion, which is an amazing act of surrender to begin with, because it recognizes what has been done for you. Not something you could do on your own, but Jesus died on a cross for you. Not something that you could do on your own, but his body was broken for you. Not something you could do for you, but his blood was shed for you, providing a new covenant, a new way to live. As you come up for communion, you're going to walk over and you're going to put those things right in this manger right here. And why I chose a manger is because, like I said last week, Jesus came into this world knowing where he was going. He knew that he came in this world to take your anxiety and your fear and your pain and your sin and travel until he comes to about 30-some years of age when he dies on a Roman cross, knowing what he's doing. He knows this. And for the joy set before him, he endured that without batting an eye. That's how much he cares for you, by the way.